Hello and welcome back to Pediatric Chat. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan and joining me as always is my co-host Paul Rosen. Hi, Paul. Hello, Jay. How's it going? How are you doing? Great, thank you. Good. In this chat, we welcome back Dr. Kathleen O'Brien, who's our expert in sports medicine here at Nemours, to help answer questions on sports and how it impacts our kids. And we are so grateful to have back some of our esteemed members of our mommy panel. And so I want to have them introduce themselves directly by opening up with some questions. So first comes Amy. Hi, Hi um, Amy. I have three very active kids and um, all love to play sports. I was wondering when would my children need to come to see you? What is a sports medicine doctor? Oh, thank you. So I see children of a wide variety of ages that are injured doing something (laughs) for the most part, which pretty much covers the whole gamut of everything. But I specialize in both acute and chronic injuries. So an acute injury, you were running and you twisted and you hurt your knee. A chronic injury, you've been playing basketball for the past two years and your knee's been bothering you for the past six months. Either of those sort of pathways come to me. And we also see, you know, backyard injuries, trampoline injuries, skateboard injuries. It doesn't necessarily have to be an organized sport injury or just playing in the backyard type of injury. And when to pull the trigger and to go and see a doctor is a tough one of trying to figure out like, you know, because you play sports, you're going to get hurt. That's kind of one of the things that happens, you know, definitively. And and I think moms know this quicker than most is you can tell that there's something wrong. So they don't always complain that it hurts because they want to keep playing. But you notice that they're not as fast as they used to be. They're limping now. They're pulling up short. They're not as excited to get out there. Those are kind of some red flags for you. If they're complaining of pain, but it doesn't seem to slow them down and they can play right through it, then I'd probably give it a little bit of time and see what sort of pans out from it. A little bit of rest if you need to, some ice and some Motrin is is usually a a reasonable thing to do. And then if it just kind of nags and nags, then that's probably, you know, time to pull the trigger to come see us. That's a great question for me to start off with is, what is the typical protocol for a backyard or an injury? Is it ice first or heat first? I always hear conflicting stories and I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing for my kids. Yeah, this is like age old question, right? Everybody is trying to figure this one out. And the way I think about it, for the most part, is if it's an acute injury, the idea behind the ice is to help keep the swelling down. Um, It will maybe, you know, numb it up a little bit and take away some of the pain. But what you're mostly trying to do is limit the swelling. That's the best reason to use ice. So if it's been hurt in the last 48 or 72 hours, probably ice is the best thing you can do for it. Heat, I think more of if you have a muscle spasm, then you want to be able to kind of let the muscle calm down. So somebody who's had back pain for, you know, three or four months, you may think more about trying to use heat to try and help some of the uh, muscle spasm to calm down. But if they just twisted and hurt their back last night, you might put ice on it for the first couple of days and see if that can help the acuteness to calm down. Hi, um, my name's Tiffany, and I'm a mom of three. Um, Hi. I am curious as well. My kids are very active. They're rough and tumble. (laughs) They scare me a lot. (laughs) And they're just slowly starting to get more and more involved in sports. So which sports do you see the most common injuries? Right. So, you know, I... Almost across the board, every sport has some risk of injury. Fantastic. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, we are big fans of golf. Um, yeah. because, but, but golf has injuries too, as it turns out. 
you know, you can think about the injuries in a number of different ways, but, you know, the one that scares everybody is the injuries that we would call catastrophic injuries. So the traumatic brain injury, big head injuries, neck injuries, um, those are most common in contact and collision sports. So things like football and rugby, ice hockey, you would think about those. Cheerleading also has a high risk of um, what we call catastrophic neck injuries, where they can have a, you know, a significant spine or spinal cord injury. Then there are, you know, sort of the acute musculoskeletal injuries. You hear about people tearing their ACL or hurting their elbow in sports like soccer, or baseball, basketball. And then chronic overuse injuries can happen in just about any sport or activity if you're overdoing it. But endurance sports, running, you know, you might not think of soccer as an endurance sport, but, you know, in a high school league where they're practicing five or six days a week, you know, they're probably running four or five miles a day just in practice or in a game. So they can lead to cumulative tendonitis or stress fractures or that sort of injury. So I'm not sure that there is any one sport that's safer than another, but you know, all the things that we're doing in life and in sports without realizing it is trying to figure out what the risk benefit sort of spectrum is here. So what is the risk of an injury versus what is the benefit of the sport? And we all know that it's not just about playing a sport, right? So kids play sports because they love sports. You know, the number one reason that kids play sports is not because they like to win, it's because they like to have fun. And so, you know, the benefits of playing a sport is not just playing the sport and it's not really winning, it's being around your friends. It's creating social circles. It's about sportsmanship and learning how to play together. It's about teamwork. There's so much that's learned from sports that's not just playing a sport that when you look at that risk-benefit ratio, the benefits keep going up and up and up. And yeah, there are risks, but they, for the most part, get outweighed as long as people take a common sense approach to it. So, you know, to answer your question, I don't know, <laughs> there's some risk in every sport, but, you know, I think the best thing you can do is figure out what they love to do and encourage them to do that and, you know, help them to, you know, play in, in the safest way that they can. You touched upon a couple of things that made me think of a really good friend of mine. She's a mom of four. She's an amazing mom. And she has three boys and one girl. And her oldest son is very, very involved in sports and does really well. And he's nine. And she, her second son is seven. And he really loves sports. And he was very involved. And all of a sudden, he just kind of gave it up and just no longer wanted to do it. And she was saying to me one day, you know, she wondered if it was more because her brother was overshadowing him and he felt kind of bad for, you know, maybe not performing the way he wanted to or possibly losing. So what do you do, especially when you come from an active family, to remotivate, to get your child involved and yeah, to do... That's really hard. And this is one of my biggest passions in sports medicine is that I think a lot of kids are getting marginalized and pushed out of sports because of the culture of the travel team that has grown exponentially over the past few years. And and everything, not everything, but many, many, many more sports have now become super competitive. They are driven by adults and not by the kids. And a lot of kids who now feel like they're not good enough or who, quite frankly, aren't quote unquote good enough to make that team now don't really have a place to go. And it breaks my heart because there are so many kids who want to be active and who want to run and who want to just play something. And there's not really a place for them anymore. So this is about, you know, redefining a culture and where how are we going to help these kids and there are some rec leagues that are still out there and there are some there's one called you know I don't want to plug any one 
group in particular, but there's one that's called I-9 Sports that yeah. um, focuses on a non-competitive atmosphere and just letting kids have fun. And, you know, this is not, so if you remember 15 or 20 years ago, you know, there was sort of the culture of everybody gets a trophy. Well, it shouldn't be that either, right? <laughs> not everybody deserves a trophy, but <laughs> we don't have to be in this super competitive it's about winning or nothing culture either. So I, I think we have to redefine a place for these kids and, and where they should be. Now, how to help that boy right now is, yeah. I think, you know, trying to help him rediscover what it was that he loved about sports. Why did he like to be there? And it was probably because he wanted to be on the team and he liked being around the guys and he was having fun. And as soon as, you know, it's right around age eight or nine that things really start to veer off. And there's actually been a couple studies done. There was one done by George Washington University in 2014 that found that that's exactly what's happening at eight or nine years old. Kids are dropping out of sports um, because there's not a place for them anymore, and they don't want to be in that uber competitive place. It happened with my older son, who's now 13. And we got to the point in middle school where the kids who played the same sport all year long, they were awesome. <laughs> he played for three months out of the year yep. and wasn't so great. He was really good, but not great yeah so after time he's like i don't want to do this anymore but as parents we encourage him that's okay yep. but let's find something else to do yeah. so now we do play golf but Perfect. Um, <laughs> my question for uh i know a lot of parents out there like you said it's important for the child to find something that they love so what if the child does love one sport and right. they play it all year long? Aren't there a lot of disadvantages to that? Shouldn't they be including some other type of activities to decrease the risk of overuse injuries? And But again, in that travel-minded atmosphere, a lot of times I see kids playing the same sport all year long. Absolutely. And that definitively leads to injury. And study after study has shown that playing the same sport throughout the year ultimately leads to overuse injuries. Whatever the sport is, if your body is making the same motions over and over and over again, then the same muscles are going to be used over and over and over again, and others aren't. And it really does lead to injury, to chronic overuse injuries. More than 50% of my practice is chronic overuse injuries that could 100% be prevented if people understood that you need to train your body differently. So so there are, you know, a couple of different issues here, right, looking at that. So one is, you know, if you're really trying to train your child or your child is hopefully trying to train themselves to be an elite athlete, what we have learned is that doing the same thing over and over again isn't what's going to get you there, right? The way to be a better baseball player isn't to just to play baseball. You have to do conditioning. You have to work on other things as well. There's models that are being developed by U.S. soccer, by USA hockey, and by the U.S. Olympic Committee that is, you know, what they've recognized is that we're not getting great elite athletes from the systems that we've developed right now. And we need to switch it up and focus more on when they're really young on just having fun and playing sports and then skill development. And then later, you know, at 14, 15, 16 on winning. Um, but before that, we're, we're just trying too soon. The other thing that I hear all the time, like you said, is that, well, they love it, right? And you know what I say to that all the time is, well, I love M&Ms, but I know I can't <laughs> have them for breakfast every morning because it's not good for me. So it's your job as a parent to sort of help 
you know, put some common sense into that love. Yes, they love baseball and absolutely they should play a lot of baseball if that's what they really want to do, but they really need to do other things, not just for their body, but for their mind too, right? And then how many times do I see somebody whose whole life has been put into that one sport and now they have an injury and they can't play that sport and they completely decompensate because they have nothing else. (laughs) They are nobody else. They feel like all they are is a soccer player, all they are is a baseball player, and now they can't do it and it's devastating for them. So uh, there's just so many ways that it can go wrong. So, you know, on, on the one thing we talk about all the things that can go wrong and that rarely gets through to a kid. Like that's why you shouldn't do it because you're going to get hurt or this is going to happen. They don't see it that way. But if we look at it from the other side of the coin of if you want to be an elite athlete, we know that physiologically, these are the things that you have to do to get there. And it's not to just keep playing 12 months out of the year. You know, you touched upon, you said about cheerleading, that that's a lot of injuries, correct? Yes. Because my oldest daughter has always expressed a little bit of interest, and I've actually steered her away because it's it's made me concerned what can happen and what kind of injuries she can get. So I've actually discouraged her. I mean, what are some of the common ones that can happen with cheerleading? Right. So again, a couple of different categories. One is the acute injuries. So when acute injuries do happen in cheer, and we're talking about competitive cheer that mm-hmm. includes stunting and tumbling. So with the stunting, catastrophic head and neck injuries, you know, from a fall or being dropped. They're not common, but when they happen, they're really bad is, is pretty much how to look at it that way. You know, then there's the acute injury, which, again, happens with any sport of I twisted my knee or I turned my ankle, you know, again, kind of risky yeah. in any sport. The chronic overuse injuries that we see the most with competitive cheerleading is probably back pain, and they frequently can get stress fractures in their back because they do a lot of backwards tumbling that puts a lot of stress on their back. And the bases who are holding up their colleagues or their teammates put a lot of stress through their back too. So stress fractures are probably one of the most common injuries that we see in competitive cheerleaders. A lot of that has to do with just doing things that your body isn't ready to do. So they're not strong enough for the level that they're at, or they haven't developed those skills well enough yet to be able to, you know, be competing at the level that they are. There's a lot that we can do to prevent those kind of injuries. And it, again, depends on working outside of the cheer season on good conditioning and making sure you're strong enough and working on your form and not you know, trying to get that back bend 50 times in a row and, you know, just trying 10 times and then taking a break and then working on your core strength because that's really what's going to get you there. So, yeah, I mean, there are definitely risks associated with cheerleading. But again, like with all of the other sports, there's certainly a lot of benefits with it, too. My oldest two, my daughter's 10, and then my son is turning eight. They've, they've gotten pretty involved in soccer. And I worry a little bit with <laughs> soccer because it is a bit contact at times and there's a lot of you know, kicking, obviously. So are there a lot of injuries associated with soccer as well? And especially like concussion, I worry about that a lot as well. Right. Yes. So yes, there are a lot of injuries associated with soccer. <laughs> I'm not giving you any answers that you want. But um, <laughs> well, we but, can put them in bubble wrap, but I don't right? think that would yeah. be very effective. Not very effective. For girls, soccer is the number one sport associated with concussions. For boys, it's probably below football and ice hockey. Lacrosse is up there as well. It is from the person-to-person contact, though, more than the ball. So it's from head-to-head contact, head-to-elbow, head-to-goal post, that sort of thing, not necessarily from heading itself. 
And then acute knee injuries are pretty common in soccer, acute ankle injuries. You hear a lot about the risk of ACL tears in young women, particularly in soccer or any cutting sport for that matter. Definitely the risk in young women is higher than in men because of some of their body mechanics. But we know, again, that's one of those things that we can really work on and hopefully prevent if they'll take the time out of the season to work on conditioning. Well, my daughter, she's actually pretty aggressive in soccer, and I love that about her, but it also, at the same time, at home, my breath a little bit. Sure. So how would I know if she hits her head? How am I going to know if she has a concussion? Right. So, and I I tell parents and kids this all the time, like, you play sports, you're going to get hit in the head. That's what happens. Most of the time when you get hit in the head, you actually don't get a concussion. And if you look back and think about all the times you've gotten hit in the head in the in your past life, you were fine. Right. Um, but when you do get hit in the head, you just stop and take a second and check yourself out and make sure you feel okay. The symptoms of a concussion can be immediate. So as soon as there's impact, you can sometimes tell they're woozy or they don't look right. You know, sort of the lights are on, but nobody's home they're not balanced. Those ones are easy. Like everybody can kind of see those and you can, you know, get those kids out and assess pretty quickly. But it can be a lot more subtle than that. And this is where it gets a little bit difficult. So, you know, kids getting banged around in a game, but they're in the heat of the moment and they may not notice that they're starting to get a headache. And then, you know, by the end of the game, maybe that's when the headache starts to develop. And that's a pretty common scenario for us. I got banged in the head. I thought I was fine. I kept playing. By the end of the game, I really had a headache and didn't feel good. So some of the symptoms can develop then over the next 24 hours. Headache, light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, dizziness, much more fatigue than just post-game fatigue. Those are probably the most common things to look for. Now, having a headache can be from a number of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have a concussion. So did you eat before the game? Are you well hydrated? Was it a really hot day? So you try and, you know, take those things out of the equation. So get them somewhere cool, get them something to drink and something to eat and see if things settle down. And if it does, that's great. Then it probably wasn't a concussion. But if their headache persists, then it's probably reasonable to get them checked out. Is the headache itself pretty severe? Not always. Um, And everybody handles that type of thing differently, too. So it's hard to know how people handle pain. You know, some people um, have what you might consider a mild headache, but to them it seems like a lot more and and vice versa. So I don't think the severity of the headache would be something that I would necessarily be interested in. I just want to do you have one or not. You had mentioned about hydration and nutrition. In children, is it more likely for them to develop or to have, you know, tears or pulls if their body is dehydrated going into the sport? Are they some of the common injuries if they're not properly hydrated? Or Yes, for sure. So especially if you're playing at a competitive level and, you know, if you're dehydrated, you're, you know, you're probably one gear short, so to speak, you know, compared to the other people that you're playing with. So I think it is easier for you to get, you know, banged around or knocked down or if your muscles are fatigued, that's when you're more likely to have injuries for sure. Um, So, you know, taking that extra time the day before, and we talk about this all the time, like hydration starts the day before, not five minutes before the game. You should be thinking about it the day before, at least in the summer, you know, if you're going to be playing. And, and, you know, we're not talking about going and running around for 30 minutes. You're not going to get dehydrated in 30 minutes. But when the practice is going to last more than an hour, that's probably when you should really start to think about it. I was actually with um, one of my mom friends, and um, she was telling me that she got a little concerned because she noticed that her seven-year-old, when he would run, his foot would turn in a little bit. Is that a common thing? Is that anything to really worry about? Or what should you do if that happens? It's a 
pretty common thing, but it's always worth seeing her pediatrician to talk about it. It can be on one side or on both sides, and we call it in-towing, so when the toes start to go in as opposed to when the feet go out, which is out-towing. And it can be a problem at the feet, it can be a problem at the shin bones, or it can be a problem at the hips. But when I say problem, it's usually not an actual problem, or it usually doesn't cause them any difficulty. It's just a developmental abnormality of the, the way that the muscles and bones are working together. And it usually does become more prominent and obvious as they're growing. Uh, You may not have noticed it so much before, but it's usually worth talking to your pediatrician about, but rarely is it ever something to worry about. Are shin splints common in kids as they're growing? So I don't think of shin splints as an injury associated with growth. There are injuries that are associated with growth, like you've heard of Osgood-Slaughter's at the knee. It's a growth plate injury that happens at the knee. They get a bump on their knee, usually in teenage boys. I think of that as like a growing problem. There's something that happens in the heel that's called Severs disease that is a, a growing problem. And certainly growing pains, you know, that pain that you get at night as kids are growing. Shin splints I don't think of as associated with growth particularly. I think of it more as... A training error, meaning too much, too soon, too fast. You weren't ready for the beginning of track. You weren't ready for the beginning of cross country or or whatever. I For soccer, for both of my kids, I have them wear mouth guards. Sometimes I don't know if I'm just being a little overprotective. Some of the kids wear them. Some of them don't. I mean, do you, do you recommend it? I do recommend mouth guards. I think mouth guards are terrific at protecting your teeth, um, but they will not prevent a concussion. And so that's where it gets a little bit confusing for people because you will see advertisements in many mouth guards are sold as preventing concussions or as concussion protective equipment. And you can find very expensive mouth guards in the hundreds of dollars that are being marketed as preventing concussions. But a number of studies have been done that have shown that mouth guards don't actually prevent concussions, but they do a great job of protecting your teeth. So I think in a contact or collision sport, I would absolutely wear a mouth guard. My youngest child, she's turning five. And she, the one and only thing that she actually really likes and I can get her to do is ballet. And I love that. And it's something that she's really taking a liking to. And I'm thinking if she stays with it and sticks with it, as she gets older and she starts to, if... You know, she stays with it and she actually goes on her toes. Mm -hmm. That's always made me a little nervous because then I start to think, what are the long-term effects going to be for her joints and her muscles and her ligaments? I mean... What, what are we looking at if, if she's that interested? Right. There are very few dancers who, you know, go all the way and make it through to the point that they will be on point for a prolonged period of time and will be successful at it and will continue through, say, their high school years. If you make it that far and you continue that far on point, then there are definitely chronic injuries to the feet and to the toes that occur. And you've probably heard people talk before about dancers' feet, and they certainly do have um, real long-term chronic problems. So to think about somebody going on point, they certainly have to be serious about it and committed to it. And there are a number of steps that they have to go to. And any good ballet studio works them through this. You have to be in ballet for a number of years. You have to have reached these milestones. You have to be able to do this before you can do that. So so it would be a progression that would happen. And, you know, at a reputable studio, it would be a safe progression that would happen. And an instructor wouldn't let her go on point until they thought that she was really ready to do it. If the instructor thought she was really ready to do it and it was one thing that she wanted to do, I would absolutely let her try it out and see what she thinks about it. And then if she's going to make, you know, a long-term commitment to it, 
then she needs to work hard at it just like every other sport. You know, they need to spend time working on conditioning and keeping their core and their hips strong so they can take some of the stress off of their toes. But quite frankly, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to have feet and toe problems. Yeah, it's almost inevitable. Yeah, yeah. I have a few questions, if you don't mind. (laughs) Take the floor, please. Okay. Um, Stretching, you know, people talk about how important it is. How important is it? It's very important. It's particularly important for young athletes because of the growth that happens. So we know that so many more injuries are common when they grow, like we just talked about. So what happens when you grow is your bones grow first and then your muscles and tendons have to catch up. So there are periods of your life as you are growing where your muscles and tendons are too short for you. And that's when you are more likely to see some injuries. And so working through some simple stretches can make a big difference in preventing injuries. In our perfect scenario, if you're gonna go play a sport, you would do a dynamic warm up before. And that would consist of you know, a light jog and then some stretches that are done while you are active. So we call them high knees, butt kickers, toy soldiers, opening and closing the gate. Soccer is one of the sports that is the best at this, that really makes dynamic warmups a part of every practice. Some other sports aren't quite as good at it. Then you would play your sport or do your activity or dance or whatever it is. And then afterwards, you would do static stretching, which is old school stretching, like what we think about when we think about stretching, like touching your toes and pulling your leg back for a quad stretch. If it's a day when you are not particularly active, but you're going through some growth spurts and you're an active individual anyway, we would love it if you would do static stretching um, anyway. And probably the easiest and best time to do that is when you get out of the shower or the tub. And honestly, the stretches would take four minutes, a total of four minutes. And I talk to kids about that all, all the time. Like, do you have four minutes in your day? I know you have four minutes in your day somewhere to do this, um, but it's boring and it's not terribly exciting. So it's not something that gets done consistently, but I think it could make a big difference. I know boys want to have six packs and big muscles. And, you know, is there a time when they, you know, the the parent can let them start to lift weights or? Absolutely. What they have to be is old enough and mature enough to understand directions, right? (laughs) Um, And to take those directions seriously. Yes, exactly. For a boy. Um, And and to take those directions seriously and to be able to be taught, right? And And to understand that. And we think, you know, probably by the time they're 10, it's really okay to start weight training, which is not necessarily weight lifting. So they don't need to be bench pressing and doing a leg press or pushing a sled. But some body weight exercises, absolutely. They could do push-ups and pull-ups and planks. And then you can start to work in, you know, a weight lifting routine with them as well. If it's something that they enjoy, then they can absolutely continue to do it. If they don't particularly enjoy it, we would like it if they did it anyway to help, you know, depending on their level of competitiveness with their sport as, as part of a conditioning program. With my two kids now getting more involved with soccer, I've you know, I, when you touched upon about the competitiveness and it comes a lot from the parents, I've, I've approached it more, I look at it, it's a form of exercise for my kids. I want to keep my kids moving and I just want them to kind of be involved in something and learn sportsmanship and it's not, I never focus on the winning part or I just want them to have fun and to enjoy it. But I also want to teach them, you've made a commitment, you have to kind of stick with it. Right. You're letting your team down if you don't show up. Right. That type of situation. When is it okay to start getting a little bit more 
I guess, aggressive with it, if they if they really take a liking and you kind of push them a little bit more, is that okay to do or is that not a good idea? Yeah, good question. Um, and I think every kid will be different and probably every parent knows their kid better than anybody else. Some will respond quite well to that and others may have sort of the opposite effect. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a very fine line. But, you know, at the end of the day, it should be driven by the kid and what they want to do. Having said that, it's hard for them, I think, I don't know how we can ask an eight-year-old what their goals are and what they want to focus on. Like, every eight-year-old wants to play in the NBA. (laughs) Um, But is that a reality for them? Maybe not. But when they're eight, are you going to crush that dream? Absolutely not, right? You're going to work with them and then kind of see what evolves. But, you know, ideally... Again, we understand that this is probably not happening right now, but ideally, I don't think there's any need or reason for someone to be sports-specific before high school. And I don't think they need to be position-specific before high school. It would be better for their bodies and better for their overall development if they did two or three different things instead of just the same thing over and over again. And then by the time they get to high school, listen, if they're really talented that's when it's going to shine. And that's when you should really foster it. And that's when you should really foster it, right? And they'll be able to foster it themselves at that point because then they'll see that if I work hard, this will pay off. But I think before that, uh, you know, just in terms of their psychosocial development, they're probably not there until at least they get to high school. I'm sure you'll have a few of those rare exceptions, but... Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's exceptions to everything and and there are clearly, you know, there's always, you know, there was... Somebody in first grade who knew they wanted to be a doctor, right? (laughs) And there was somebody in first grade who knew they were going to play in the NBA. But I think most of us didn't have that much insight. Right. Yeah. You guys good? I think so. Um, We covered a lot. Kathleen, I see a lot of trainers at the sidelines now is that a rule that that, that has to happen in certain states or what's, what's yeah going on so that? um certified athletic trainers are actually highly educated healthcare professionals almost all of them have a master's degree and many of them are hired by the high school or the school district or a physical therapy group to provide care at the school and on the sidelines in the state of pennsylvania i believe almost every high school in PA has an athletic trainer with them, which is fantastic. What we should be working on, I think, is getting those professionals to the younger kids in the grade school level and at the organized sports level. That would be fantastic. They provide an incredible service that is right there on the sidelines, but it will cost a significant amount of resources to be able to do that. I know we had a previous chat with you on concussion. And that was about a year ago. I think things have really progressed. I know, you know, impact testing is pretty much much more standard now in terms of pre-athletics. Any any thoughts, any comments? Is it, it looks like you guys are doing a great job of getting the word out. Thanks. Yeah, we're really trying and, and I totally agree. The amount of knowledge that has been gained in the community is is tremendous. There's much more awareness and there are now many more programs in place to help coaches to understand and to recognize the signs of concussion and state laws now that require that at least at the PIAA level that if there is any concerns of a concussion that they have to be seen by a healthcare provider. So I think we've made some pretty significant strides. We still have a long way to go but I, I think we're really getting there. Any other questions? 
Well, Kathleen, as always, you're a great person to have on chat. I know we could talk for many more hours, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess you have to go see some patients. Yeah, <laughs> so thanks so much for joining us. And Thank if you, you have any questions for Kathleen, again, please send them to the web portal on our pediatric chat site. Now I'll, I'll talk to Kathleen and get back to you. But thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question about this topic, or if there's another topic you'd like us to explore in a future pediatric chat, you can send it to us by using the question portal on our webpage. And be sure to view our library for more pediatric chat programs. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan, and thanks for listening.